All right, well, do you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter number 45, both campuses and online? If you do, shout amen. 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 I'm glad that you do. Let me welcome you into week number seven. This is week seven of our eight-week-long, two-month-long series that we've been calling Trust Like Joseph. Uh, next week, we're going to wrap this teaching series up, and I just have to say I'm going to be a little sad to close the, close the book on Joseph and not be talking about him week after week. I've been personally challenged by the things that we've been studying together, and I hope that you have as well. Uh, last week, we were talking about this idea of learning to trust God like Joseph did uh, in the matter of forgiveness. You know, we've talked about trusting God with our future and trusting God with uh, our suffering and trusting God with our families. And, and so a, a lot of different life lessons that are, that are uh, there in Joseph's life for us to learn how to trust like he did. But perhaps the most difficult life lesson to learn along with Joseph is this lesson of trusting God when it comes to forgiveness. Last week, we talked about the fact that Joseph used his power to grant forgiveness to his brothers. Do you remember from chapter 42, verse number 6, look at it. I said to you last week that Joseph had all of the power. It's so different from chapter 37 where he's thrown in the pit and sold into slavery. He had no power. At that time, when he was 17 years old, and his brothers were abusing him and, and treating him so e uh, with so much evil. But in chapter 42, verse number 6, when they appear before him, and he's now the governor of Egypt, verse number 6 says, it is Joseph who decides who gets food and who doesn't get food. Joseph has all the power. And we watched last week as Joseph used that power to extend forgiveness to his brothers. And in the same way, you and I are granted a measure of power when an offender, when someone sins against us, when someone uh, is indebted to us, as Jesus said in his model prayer, because they have sinned against us, that indebtedness to us gives us a measure of power. We can use that power to withhold things from them. We can withhold our speech from them. I'm mad I'm not talking to you. We can withhold our friendship from them. I'm not going to like you anymore. You've done me wrong. Uh, we can withhold or we can uh, use that power to pile shame and guilt on them and constantly remind them of the ways in which they've sinned against us. We, we can use our power to retaliate or we can learn to trust God like Joseph did and we can use our power to forgive. And you'll remember, I hope from last week, that to forgive means to release the power. It means to give up the power that we have over that offender, to, to release them from the debt that they have incurred by their wrong actions. This is the first part of forgiveness. This is that part of forgiveness that happens inwardly. It happens on the inside of me. It is the, the forgiveness that I'm extending to them in my heart and by faith. And that I extend to them regardless of what they do or don't do. It is that, that forgiveness that I offer to them even if they're no longer living. Or even if they have never said I'm sorry 
or even if they haven't changed their attitude or their behavior. It is that forgiveness whereby I do business with God because I have been forgiven by God and so I in turn then extend that forgiveness to them. But there's a second part of forgiveness. And the second part of forgiveness is that outward part. It's that relational part where having forgiven someone by faith, having, having forgiven them in my heart, then I need to do the business that is relational with that person. That has to do with now how do I interact with them? How do I relate to that person going forward? This is the part of forgiveness where the offender is pardoned, where I explicitly pardon them for what they have done, and because of that pardon, we are then restored to some degree and hopefully some full measure of fellowship. You may be familiar, in fact, I would think that many of you would be familiar with the name Corey Tinboom. Uh, Corey Tinboom is well known because, mostly because of her writings, her most famous book, The Hiding Place. Uh, Corey Tinboom was from Holland and uh, she was a part of the Dutch resistance during World War II. She um, hid Jewish people, she and her family hid. Uh, Jewish people who were being hunted by the Nazis uh, in their home. Now, Corey and her family were not a Jewish family. They were a Dutch Christian family. But they hid Jewish families in resistance to the Nazis in Germany. Um, Corey and her sister Betsy and her father were arrested uh, in 1944 because they were uh, discovered as having given aid and comfort and shelter to Jewish people. And they were all three sent to, to uh, concentration camps. Uh, Ravensbrück concentration camp is where Corey and Betsy were abused and tortured and humiliated. Ultimately, Betsy died there and Corey's father died as well. Uh, Corey was released just before the end of the war, and after the war, she proclaimed the gospel until her death in 1983. I want to share with you a story that Corey Tinboom often shared about the moment when she was confronted with one of the soldiers from the Ravensbrook concentration camp after the war had ended. I thought about just trying to tell you bits and pieces of the story, but I, I knew that I would do it an injustice. In, uh, in trying to do it that way. So would you, would you just indulge me for a moment just to read what is a little bit of a lengthy excerpt of this story. But I think it's worth it. Cortinboom writes, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. They were moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth that they needed most 
to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I liked to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And that's when I saw him. He was working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, his blue uniform and visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It all came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. I again felt the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, her ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Oh, Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland, and this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, his hand reaching out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember me, one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned the Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. and I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again his hand came out. Will you forgive me? And there I stood. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven. And I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow and terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, his hand extended. But to me, it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. So there I stood with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. 
And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I said, with all my heart. I forgive you. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did in that moment. Wow. Corey Tinboom was empowered to forgive this guard from Ravensbrook because he repented. In the same way, Joseph's brothers repented. And in our text in Genesis chapter number 45, it is because of their repentance that there is a beautiful family reunion and an amazing moment of reconciliation that we're able to read about in chapter 45. You follow along as I read Genesis 45, beginning in verse number one. The Bible says, Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all those that stood by him. And so he cried aloud, Calls every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard Joseph weeping. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father yet live? And his brothers could not answer him, for they were troubled. They were afraid. You can imagine in his presence. And Joseph said unto his brothers, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said to them, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves that you sold me here, for God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years has the famine been in the land, and there are yet five years in which there shall be neither earring nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Verse 9, hurry now, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, come be with me, do not tarry. You will dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, that is you and my brothers, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herd, and all that you have. And there I will nourish you, for yet there are five more years of famine. I will nourish you there, so you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. Verse 12, and behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, which by the way... It is the first time Joseph has spoken the name Benjamin. And if there was any doubt in his brothers as to whether or not he was truly Joseph, they know in that moment this is certainly Joseph because he knows the name of his youngest or their and their youngest brother, 
Benjamin. The eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that is speaking unto you. And you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen. And you shall hasten and bring my father down to me. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all of his brothers and he uh, wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. I want to say something to you this morning that some of you prior to today have not believed. And you may not believe it even today as I say it to you, but I hope that by the time God's grace works fully in our hearts in this hour and in these coming days that you will begin to believe it and that it is it will become a reality for you. And that is simply to say that there are some broken relationships in our lives that can be healed. There are some places of unforgiveness and separation that can begin to be restored and healed. And while things may never be like they once were, maybe circumstances are such that that things can never be, you can't turn the clock back and undo what's been done, but there can be a healing of relationships. There will be scars, no doubt, that will remain, But the scars are the story. They tell the story. The scars are our testimony, a testimony to what had been broken and yet has been healed by God. And the pathway to this better place, the pathway to this healing and reconciliation, hear me clearly, is the pathway of repentance. Repentance is necessary for reconciliation. And so to the guilty, I would say, repent. If you are guilty in a relationship of having sinned against some person last week, last month, last decade, and if that relationship remains broken, and it is broken because of some action, some choice, some deed, some words, something that you are guilty of doing or saying, here is my encouragement to you. Repent. Repent to the one that you have offended. Because repentance is the pathway to reconciliation. It is necessary for reconciliation. The word repent, as you know, means to change the mind. It means to begin to think differently and change my direction. And so I challenge you to repent. If you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Christ for salvation, may I say to you, repent. Be honest before God. Admit your guilt before God. Confess your sins before him and repent of those sins, putting your faith in Jesus. Repentance is the pathway to reconciliation. And so repent. And to the victim, I would say, to the one who has been sinned against, to the one walking in this new experience because of what someone else has done, if they will repent... 
then you have a responsibility to be willing to forgive and to pardon that offense. To forgive in your heart first, regardless of what they do, but then if they will repent, to be willing to pardon the offense. Now, I said to you last week that when the sins against us are grievous, serious, life-altering sometimes offenses, then forgiving and pardoning can be the most difficult thing that we will ever do. And so let me help you from the text. Now, not me help you. Let's let the text help us. Take some steps toward pardoning those who repent. How can we do this? Well, the first thing that I would say to you, and I hope you'll jot this down somewhere and, and chew on this as we go throughout the day and you, uh, by God's spirit, think about the offenders in your life and those who have or perhaps one day will repent to you. We can pardon them if we will recognize the sovereignty of God. It is possible for us to forgive if we will acknowledge and and recognize the sovereignty of God. Did you notice in our text that the very first words that Joseph speaks to his brothers in this moment, this glorious moment of pardoning their, their sins against him, the very first words that he speaks are not words of woundedness, not words of how could you, not words of you, you, you treated me so wrongly, but they were affirmations of the sovereignty of God. Look at it, verse number five. Now therefore be not grieved or angry with yourselves that you sold me here, for God did send me here. That's an affirmation of the sovereignty of God. You sold me as a slave, but God sent me here. Listen to what he says in verse number seven. And God sent me before you. You see these words again, these, the same uh, theme in verse number eight. So it was not you that sent me here, but it was God that sent me here. All of these are Joseph's affirmations of this fact that he recognized that what his brothers had done to him was an evil and horrible thing, but that God's sovereignty was operative in all of it. Now, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, what do we mean by that? The word sovereignty means simply we're, we're speaking about the control of God and the authority of God. I would use, use those two words, the control of God and, the, and the, the authority of God. When we speak of sovereignty, what we mean is simply to say God is God. And God is always God every moment of every day. There's never a moment when he's not God over all things, and so he is God in every circumstance that comes into our lives. We're affirming the superintendence of God or the oversight of God in everything that happens. Now, that's not to say that God ordains evil actions, and it's not to say that God ordained the evil actions of Joseph's brothers, but it is to say 
that he is so sovereign that his overarching superintendence and lordship over all things is such that he takes their evil deeds and he turns those evil deeds for good. In fact, Joseph says those exact words. Turn to chapter number 50 of of, uh, Genesis. Genesis chapter number 50 and verse number 20. And listen to what he says. Joseph says there, but as for you, you planned evil against me. And we've read it, right? They planned evil in their hatred. They planned evil when he came to check on them. They planned evil as he arrived at the place where they were keeping the sheep. They planned evil in determining they were going to sell him as a slave. They contemplated, they conspired evil actions. You planned evil. You thought evil against me. But God meant it. Meant what? It. What is it? The evil that you planned. God meant the evil that you planned for good. This is the sovereignty of God. And I can forgive those who sin against me when I understand that God superintends even over their evil. We must recognize the sovereignty of God. When we recognize the lordship of Jesus, then we can recognize that God is in control and at work even in the worst of circumstances. Chapter 45 and verse number 8, I mentioned this verse to you a moment ago. He says, now it was not you that sent me here, but God. Will you circle or underline those two words in verse number 8? But God. In fact, uh, why don't you say it out loud with me, just those two words. Let's say it, but God. You intended evil, say it, but God. You sold me here, say it, but God. You're a bunch of derelicts, but God. He's simply saying God was in control of all of the situations. Let me ask you, how do you see the but God moments in your life? What are they? Where are the moments where you can look back and say, that happened, but God. That that was a real thing. That was a deep valley, (laughs) but God. Maybe you would say, that person that I trusted, they deserted me. They proved themselves disloyal to me. They abandoned me. But you could say, but God. God met me in that abandonment. God met me in that desertion and God led me to a new path. But God, that person abused me. That person took advantage of me. But God is using my past to give me grace to now minister to others who are hurting and abused. And I never could have known how to do that without that past. That person lied to me. But God has always spoken truth to me and always led me in the right way. That person betrayed me, but God is teaching me to be loyal. This person stole from me, but God has returned to me more than I have ever had taken from me. How do you see the but God moments in your life? And I would simply say to you that if you can recognize the sovereignty of God, that he is 
always working all things for good and for his glory, shaping us into the likeness of Christ and making us what he wants to be, then even when horrible sins are committed against us, we can say, but God is using that. And if I trust in the sovereignty of God, then I can pardon the sinners who have committed sins against me. That's the first thing that Joseph did. We should learn to trust God in that same way. It is to recognize the sovereignty of God. Secondly, we can pardon those who have sinned against us and who repent if we will make allowance for the judgment of God. If we will make allowance for the judgment of God. Now let's be honest, when we refuse to pardon, when we use our power to harm or heap, uh, uh, pile on guilt or heap on shame, when we use pardon, our, our power to punish rather than pardon, what are we doing? We're really, in our own tiny little way, stepping into that situation as God. I have divine power over you. I'm, I'm going to take the place of God. And we can, we can avoid that if we will recognize that God is a God of judgment and justice. In fact, back in chapter number 50, would you look at it again? At the end of chapter 49, Jacob, their father, dies. Now in chapter 45, Joseph says, go bring Jacob and your family. Bring my father and your family. And they come and they begin to live in the land of Goshen. A number of years pass. I think another 17 years pass. And in verse number 33, Jacob, their father, dies. Verse 1 of chapter 50, Joseph fell upon his father's face and wept upon him and kissed him. Now, as you might imagine, following the death of Jacob, even though they have been forgiven, pardoned, and restored to fellowship with Joseph for over a dozen years now, when Jacob dies, the brothers begin to worry. And they begin to worry because they think, well, Joseph, now that daddy's dead, is going to take his vengeance on us. Joseph maybe has only been kind to us in reverence and honor for dad. But now that dad is gone, surely... He will take vengeance on us. Verse 15, chapter 50, verse 15. And Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They said, Joseph will perhaps hate us and he will certainly repay us all the evil that we did to him. And so they sent a messenger into Joseph saying, your father did command before he died saying, so shall you say unto Joseph, forgive I pray thee now the trespass of your brothers and their sin." And for they did unto you evil, and now we pray. The brothers are asking again, would you forgive us the trespasses of uh, the servants of the God of your father? And when they did this, Joseph wept before them. And his brothers went and fell down before their face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Now listen to what Joseph says in verse number 19. Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? Fear not, for am I in the place of God? You don't need to be afraid of me. I'm not going to bring judgment on you. God is a God of justice. And because Joseph knew that God is in fact a God of justice and that he does all things well and he does all things in his time, Joseph didn't have to execute justice upon them. He was free to simply be kind to them. And to allow God to do in them whatever God saw fit to do in them. 
We can forgive. We can pardon when we recognize that we don't have to take vengeance. Romans 12, 19 reminds us, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If we're confident in that, if we know that God has it, he's going to do what is right in that situation where we have been violated, that God will execute his justice in his time according to his righteousness, then we can pardon. Well, Joseph recognized the sovereignty of God. He made allowance for the justice of God. These things allowed him to pardon his brothers. And then thirdly, I would say to you that we can pardon those who sin against us like Joseph did if we will step toward our offender. Step toward our offender. Now, admittedly, this will look different in different circumstances and situations. I know that. But I want you to embrace this principle of pardoning, this principle of what it means to pardon somebody. Now, you would agree with me, wouldn't you, that when someone sins against us, when someone violates us in some way, they, they betray us, what is our natural response? It's to pull back, right? We recoil. When someone violates me, I want to get away from them. And we, and we, we pull away from them in any way that we can. We cross to the other side of the street when we see them coming. If we're in the, in the grocery store on aisle six and they're coming down the other way, we go to aisle eight. We, we try to get away from them and not be confronted with them. It's, it's our natural response to put up these barriers so that we don't have to see them or be near them. But listen to me. When we can forgive in our hearts and when we experience the genuine repentance of those who are our adversaries, we are enabled to step toward them. Again, it looked different in every situation. For Corey Timboom, it was just the simple act of putting my hand out. That was it. But we are enabled by God's grace through our faith, and because of their repentance, we are enabled to step toward the people that we otherwise would avoid like the plague. And what might that look like? Write these things down, number one. It might look like a restored relationship. To some degree, it might look like a restored relationship. Chapter 45 and verse 4, Joseph says to his brothers, come, come near, come near me. They've been standing distant. They're afraid. He says, come near to me. And they came near. Verses number 14 and 15 of chapter 45, there's weeping and and kissing and embracing and, and talking. And you have to read that in light of chapter 37 and all that they did to him and, and, and say, Wow, who could have ever dreamed that this text could be in the Bible? That these brothers would be weeping and hugging and embracing. But it's possible. I want you to hear me. It's possible. God can do it. It's the power of repentance and faith. It's the power of the gospel that God can bring about some uh, restoration of a relationship because we are willing to forgive. You know, we have to deal with this in our marriages all the time, don't we? Because we're, you know, the problem, guys, our wives, they're not perfect. Amen? 
you're wise men. You sat in silence, most of you did. And we're far from perfect. And so because we're imperfect people, we have to forgive one another. And if there's going to be that relationship's going to remain healthy, we, we have to repent. We have to say, I'm sorry. You know, the most powerful words in the human language, five words, I'm sorry, I was wrong. The most powerful words you can ever speak. And we have to be willing to let the relationship be restored because we forgive. Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, once wrote that a happy marriage is defined in this way. It is the union of two good forgivers. That's <laughs> true. Two good forgivers. When there is repentance, there can be a restoration of relationship. Secondly, when we step toward our offender, we are then able to relieve them of their guilt. I want to talk about this for just a second as we close. We are able to relieve them of their guilt. Now, your first response may be, what? Relieve them of their guilt, my foot? They're guilty. Why would I relieve them of their guilt? Well, I want you to look at chapter 45 and verse number 5. Joseph says to them, not just God is sovereign, he sent me here. He says to them in verse number 5, now therefore do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. Wow. This is true pardoning. Joseph looks at the ten men who had sold him for silver and left him for dead and because he recognizes the sovereignty of God and he trusts in the justice of God, he then is free to look at them and say, look, I don't want you to be angry with yourselves. I don't want you to be grieved over what you did. Now let me be clear. His relieving them of their guilt is not to, to remove their, their culpability. It's not to take away godly sorrow. It's not to say, hey, don't worry about it. He's not giving a wink and a nod. Like, you know what? No big deal. No, it's not that at all. What he's doing is because he trusts in the sovereignty of God and he can trust in the justice of God and he's seen their repentance. He's taking the, if y'all are listening, say amen, the balm the balm of grace and on their burning guilt and conscience he's rubbing in the balm of grace and he's saying look God is sovereign God knew what he was doing you meant it for evil God meant it for good he's working in all things he's made me Lord in Egypt Lord over Pharaoh's house he's done this so we could live I know what you did was wrong but I want you to experience the grace of God because God's sovereignty is overarching. When I am able to pardon, then I'm able to say to them, I want you to, I want you to have God's grace over what you've done. By the way, as recipients of God's grace, can I get a witness? As people to whom the God of eternity has said, I don't want you to feel shame anymore. I don't want you to grieve over your sin anymore. It's forgiven. I'm using it now for my glory. That balm of grace forgives us and we ought to offer it to others. So what might it look like to have a restored relationship or to, to begin to step toward them? It means that our relationship might be restored to some degree, that we're able to relieve them of their guilt. And then finally, that we might be able to return to some purpose together. 
We might be able to return to some purpose together. You know, uh, you've experienced this, I'm sure. It's one of the great losses that we suffer when a relationship is, is broken. And it's the loss of partnership in some great work together. Now, you know, we would most often see this in the loss of a marriage, where there's sin in a marriage and a marriage is broken. You know, it's, it's more than just husband and wife living together in the same home. There's a, there's a purpose in that marriage. There's a life purpose that we're pulling together, right? It's raising a family or raising our kids or whatever. And so, so often in families, because of sin, that purpose is lost. It happens in businesses. Business partners go into work, go into business together, and they, they're going to they're gonna, you know, change the world. They've got this great project or this great product or this great mission, and, and then because of sin, it's torn apart, and they lose that purpose. It happens in ministry all the time where people lock their arms in ministry together, and yet there's sin in that ministry or in that church or in that relationship between two brothers or sisters, and that great work they were doing for God, suddenly it's separated. It's one of the great losses because of offenses. But when we're able to pardon, when there is a willingness to forgive and there's repentance and so we're able to trust in God's sovereignty and and wait on God's justice and, and offer the balm of grace and we can pardon them then maybe our relationship can be restored to some degree and, and, and maybe we can have this opportunity to relieve their, their guilt. But maybe, not always does it work this way, but maybe there's some way we can lock arms together again and begin to work in some great purpose together. I've seen this before in lives where, where, where people were broken apart and then they came back together and that work continued. By the way, you see it in the life of Jacob, who has just died. Not Joseph, but Jacob and his brother Esau in Genesis 39, where their relationship had been broken because of the sin of Jacob. And Esau was going to kill him. And 20 years passed, and they, they hated one another, or at least Esau hated Jacob. No way they were going to ever get to do anything together again. But in Genesis 39, there's been repentance, there's been forgiveness, there's been pardoning, there's been a stepping toward one another. They've come back together. And in Genesis 39, you see this beautiful thing where Jacob and Esau, two brothers, are burying their father Isaac together. They put their hands back to the work together. Uh, Acts 13 where Paul and John Mark have a falling out because Mark is a scaredy cat. <laughs> and Paul's ashamed of him for being so afraid of the persecution. And he says, I don't want anything to do with that kid anymore. I'm never going to minister with him again because he chickened out. Until you come to 2 Timothy, the end of Paul's life, when he says to Timothy, bring Mark because he's profitable. This is beautiful. He's profitable to me in the ministry. The unprofitable one has become profitable because of forgiveness. And you see this in Joseph's experience with his brothers. Chapter 50, verses 12 to 14, where they come together. These brothers who are divided, they come together and they bury. They put their hands to the work of burying their father together. I don't know. know, It doesn't always happen, but sometimes it can. God will take this broken relationship And he will allow us, because there's been repentance and forgiveness and we've trusted in the sovereignty of God, we've made room for the justice of God and we've stepped toward that person and there's been some restoration of relationship and a balm of grace, then sometimes God lets us put our hands to the plow again together in some way and do some great work for God. 
And maybe the most, well, not maybe, certainly, the most beautiful illustration of this has to do with the sinner who repents before God and trusts in Christ for salvation. And that person who could never in any way do any work for God ever now is able to join with Christ in the work of the gospel and to partner with the Holy Spirit and to do the work of ministry, partnering his hand on the plow with God's hands because he repented and God forgave him and there was grace. I want to say to you, if you're listening, shout amen. I want to say to you, pardoning an offender, forgiving those who have wronged against you, who have committed sin against you, is a beautiful demonstration of the grace that God has given to us. And it is possible by his power and by his grace. So I hope that last week you forgave some people in your heart. And I hope today you're now ready, you're waiting. And when they come and they say, hey, can I say to you, I'm sorry, I was wrong, that you're not just going to, well, yeah, about time you said that and move on. But you're going to step toward. Amen.